Hello and welcome to Nightlight. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 makes this statement. By now, he says to his recipients of this letter, you ought to be teaching others, yet you still have need that someone teach you the basic principles of the Word of God and have become those who need milk. He structures the sentence there in such a way that it implies that they had grown to a place of maturity where they should be beyond milk, and they had willfully reverted back to milk drinking. The analogy, of course, to the simple basic principles of Scripture. And he says, by now you ought to be beyond that, but you've become again those who have need of milk and can't digest solid food because solid food is for mature people. Milk is for babies. Solid food is for those who, by reason of use, have trained their senses to discern the difference between good and evil. Trained their senses to discern the difference between good and evil. So he's saying here that the characteristic of maturity, among other things, is the capacity to understand good and evil wherever the conflict arises, whether it's in a circumstance publicly or politically or uh, societally or whether it's within your own human soul. There's obviously a danger in thinking that you're adept at determining the difference between good and evil everywhere except in your own heart. You know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wisely pointed out that after observing the wickedness and cruelty of the Soviet system, uh, he realized that evil is not a matter of ideologies or political structures or outward forms, but evil, he says, goes right through the human heart and cuts through every individual. Well, Hebrews 4 says the same thing in reference still to this same subject. Uh, before the writer of Hebrews starts his discourse about immaturity and lack of discernment, he says in chapter 4, verse 12, The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul from spirit, joints from marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and motivations of the heart. For nothing is hidden before the eyes with whom we have to deal, but all things are naked and open before him. Uh, this is what Solzhenitsyn is referring to, that the evil we've got to confront first has to be confronted in their own hearts. I mean, is there anything more evil than the religious person who thinks he can do no wrong while at the same time judging and castigating and when he has the power to do so, persecuting any other person who doesn't agree with his point of view. That's one of the most dangerous and evil forms of, of uh, deception that we have on the planet. But at the same time, to just look at evil within and never take a stand against evil without is itself another form of evil. When I walked into my office this morning, I felt really empty. 
Uh, I don't mean I hadn't had breakfast. I, I, I mean I felt emotionally drained. Now, part of that's from extreme tiredness from some of the things that Mary and I have had to deal with the last few weeks in preparation for a conference that's right on top of us. But it was more than that. It was it was a kind of emptiness that begins to try to be filled with another point of view than than the point of view that gives life meaning and hope. If I had given vent to it, if I gave voice to it, this empty, say, well, how can emptiness have a voice? Well, I'll, I'll explain that more in a moment. But this emptiness would say, uh, nothing you do is of any value and nothing that you uh, hope for is ever going to come to anything and everything that you feel is reality and everything that you uh, don't feel is that you wish you could feel is a fantasy. Well, you know, on and on and on. I mean, I don't give the thing a voice, but if it had a voice, that's what it would say. Now, how can an emptiness have a voice? Well, because there's a personality behind emptiness. Any of you who might have seen the uh, the fairy tale called The Never-Ending Story, some of you may have read it. It was a famous German uh, children's story from the 1960s, made into a movie in the early 80s. They're about to do another version of it. God only knows whether it'll be good or not. But uh, in this story, uh, the land of make-believe and the, the, the land of imagination is slowly being destroyed. And uh, the, the people who uh, inhabit the land of make-believe can't find out what's de- causing this destruction. But they call it the nothing, capital N-O-T-H-I-N-G, the nothing. And uh, the nothing is capitalized because the nothing is not a, a, an absence of, of anything, but it is the presence of that which would negate everything. So well, I don't understand the difference. Well, yeah, I think you do. Think about it. Uh, the, the nothing, the word nihilism, nihilism comes from this nothingness, but nihilism, nihilism, is not a non-entity. It has a, a mind behind it. Uh, to be a, a nihilist is one who has a certain way of looking at life that produces the anti-life uh, that comes from his philosophy. So, to just say nothing means the absence of everything is not the same thing as saying there is a kind of nothing that is very much present. The, the, the nothing little n is just the absence of things. But the nothing capital N is the presence of something that seeks to destroy everything. So another word for the nothing would be Satan. And of course, the book of Revelation actually personifies him with the name Apollyon, which means the destroyer. Uh, the, the, and Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 12, 10, 11, and 12, uh, the thief comes only for the purpose of to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And the word destroy there is you, the same word that's used in Revelation to speak of Apollyon, the destroyer the one who undoes life. 
He, his purpose is to undo, to untie, to disintegrate, to empty, to, to adulterate to the point of making of, uh, something no longer of any value whatsoever. Um, the, the destroyer, we always think of that word destroy, uh, in terms of battleships and explosions and large demonstrations of physical power. But the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy usually doesn't come in big blazes of glory like that. Not very often. On the norm, in the norm, he comes quietly, subtly, seductively, whispering, negating, undoing, untying, when I walked in this morning and felt this emptiness, if I had been a typical uh, unbelieving product of our generation, I would have either gone to some stimulant to make myself feel something that I want to feel so that I can uh, feel alive, or I would have sunk into uh, the definition of my emotions as being the definition of reality, and I would have just sunk into despair and depression and absence of hope and uh, so forth. Well, thankfully, I didn't do either one because I, I know that my inner emotional world is not the defining force that determines reality. And so it, it, would, it didn't take but just a few minutes for me to get quiet, still myself in the presence of the one who created me, receive from him his point of view, his definition, his revelation, and I began to be filled immediately with the sense of his presence, the sense of his uh, direction, and I was able to proceed with what I, uh, he had me to do. Now, with that revelation comes automatically the joy of being in relationship with him. And that joy releases physical strength. And the physical strength then makes the work that I have in front of me to do a pleasure instead of a burden. And I live my life this way. Uh, I don't feel, quote-unquote, the presence of God all the time. Uh, I don't feel any one particular feeling all the time. But whenever I have those times when either for physical reasons or emotional reasons or whatever the reasons, I feel empty and drained and lacking in power uh, and lacking in direction, and my emotions are flat, and my mind is hungry to try to find something to attach to that gives me purpose and definition and meaning. I don't have to flounder around and try to find what that is, nor do I have to go to some television or movie or some stimulant. Uh, you know, I don't have to do that. I recognize what that drivenness is. I lived in it for many years. But I don't live that way anymore. If I do fall into those patterns, I immediately recognize that I'm falling backwards into a pattern that's no longer the real me, and I repent and come back to my true self. This is what we mean when we talk about being centered in Christ. There is a center 
in me, where Christ sits on enthroned. This is what we mean when we talk about practicing the presence of Jesus. Why do we have to practice? Because everything in our culture fights against acknowledging the invisible reality that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, and that in the meantime, he sent his Holy Spirit to us to live in us and speak to us and guide us, and that this union with him is the very meaning of existence. See, in that emptiness that I'm talking about, this is the emptiness that so many people either fill with an addictive behavior or they sink into it and become uh, mentally ill. Now, the emptiness can have psychological roots, as we've talked about so many times before, where there's been a lack of parenting, a lack of affection, a lack of touch, a lack of bonding. Uh, That's an obvious thing. But what we see happening around us today is not just from that, although that's always a, a part of it, what we see is are people who are being emptied of all sense of purpose and meaning by the very culture around us that has been so constructed by the deconstructors that meaning and purpose and identity are always uh, questioned to the point that uh, there's nothing left inside. Um there's no there's no transcendent reality so meaning has to be constructed by yourself which i always say is like falling off of a building and trying to catch yourself by pulling yourself up by your own belt buckle you're going to crash you don't have within you the uh, capacity to give yourself meaning just like a ditch doesn't have within it the power to dig itself The garden doesn't have within it the power to weed itself. And you don't have within you the power to give you meaning. I am the captain of my fate. I am the, you know, the the guardian and and director of my soul, so forth. Those are all big, fancy, meaningless, stupid words. Uh, If there is no ability to see beyond your emptiness, you'll fall into it, which to me is a pictured in the book of Revelation is the bottomless pit. Uh, the bottomless pit of the human soul that has nowhere to go when it's turned away from its intended purpose by rejecting its creator. Uh, this is hell. Sinking down into the hell of the empty self. Falling, falling, falling with no bottom. Now, in in uh, Paradise Lost, Milton draws a picture of Satan based on his understanding of of the dynamics that were going on in Satan at the fall. And he, he, he puts in Satan's mouth these words, Evil be thou my good. That Satan intended to construct a universe in which his own rules ruled the universe. He was going to construct an alternative to God's revelation of of reality. And uh, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche made made the statement in some of his writings that it is better to will 
against life than to live life under anybody else's rules or definitions. Or to say it again like Satan said it in in Paradise Lost, it's better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. Of course, that communicates a false idea that eventually Satan is going to rule in hell. He's not going to rule in hell. He's going to be an inhabitant of the hell that now inhabits him. What is in him, eventually, uh, he becomes a, uh, a captive of and then a prisoner to forever, which is true of all creation. I mean, whatever we don't uh, yield to God for redemption becomes that which takes us over, and uh, we become one with it. So, getting back to my emptiness, when I feel empty, it's just a feeling. I bring that feeling in the presence of the Lord, and in just a few moments, uh, my feelings change, and they begin to line up with a greater reality, and I begin to come up out of the temptation to sink into passivity or introspection or self-pity or depression or the tendency to try to fix those negative feelings by stirring up lust or anger or pride or any of the other things that uh, you could list. Now, the purpose of Satan is to undo everything. He is the destroyer. As I mentioned a while ago, Jesus says he comes to steal to kill, and to destroy. And uh, Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The Father says to Israel in Deuteronomy 28, I've set before you this day blessing and cursing, life and death. Therefore, choose life that you might live. Choosing life has to do with choosing God's definition of reality over against the demonic definition of unreality. God's definition of life up against Satan's definition of unlife. Now, in his desire to undo and destroy everything, he he has a program. He has a plan. You know, he's not just a complete idiot flying around the universe attacking helter-skelter like a mad dog, although he is very much like a mad animal. That's why the the Bible portrays him as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour or as a bloodthirsty beast. But he, he is insane and evil, but he's not completely lacking in craft. He's, he's crafty. That means he crafts mechanisms to trap people in. He he builds traps. Psalm 91 promises that if we abide, abide in the shadow of the Almighty and say of the Lord, He is our refuge, our fortress, our God, in Him we will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler. Well, that's what this is talking about. God springing the traps the enemy has set for those who abide under His shadow for protection. But the enemy sets traps. He, he weaves webs like a fat spider. He, uh, he waits for his prey. 
and lures them in bit by bit. So the destroying aspect of satanic nature is not so much, as I said a while ago, a big explosion as as a, a subtle, quiet, slow, sure seduction into a web where from which there's then eventually no escape. Uh, so Paul says in Second Timothy chapter two, or is it maybe First Timothy chapter two? Um, he says that the pastor or the spiritual director should be gentle, patient with those who do, who oppose themselves, who uh, who refuse to hear truth, and who are therefore taken captive by the enemy in order to cause them to serve him uh, and to be bound by him. See, the, the, the power of destruction is more in the mind, in the strongholds of thinking. That's why Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3, 4, and 5, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war after the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but they're mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down evil reasonings, evil ways of thinking, concepts, ways of thinking. Thought produces action. Action produces destiny. So it matters a great deal how you think. Now, the the nihilism, this hopelessness, this meaninglessness uh, that has drowned our culture and is drowning our culture and is increasing the suicide rate and the addictive rates uh, of, of uh, various kinds of addictions. Uh, all this is pouring to us right out of a philosophy, a way of thinking, which the Bible calls a stronghold. This way of thinking uh, has been perpetrated against the people of this country and against the West, Great Britain, and all of the West, for the past 70 years. And it, it, you know, Satan loves to manipulate language, and put he puts language, uh, he, he manipulates and twists language in order to uh, change the meaning so that he can ob- ob- obtain his purpose. And uh, the satanic lie that I'm referring to here with reference to nihilism, has gotten a, a, a facelift over the last few years. It is now called progressivism. When you hear some politician like Hillary Clinton speak of herself as a progressive, what does she mean? The average person who's trying to make a living and do the best he can listening to the radio or listening to the television or reading the newspaper, he says, well, you know, God God bless her. She's, she's for progress. She's a progressive. Aren't you for progress? Well, it depends on what you're talking about. If I'm trying to make a trip from here to Dallas and uh, I want to get there, then progress for me is getting closer and closer to Dallas. But uh, as I've quoted before, the Professor Peter Kraft says, if you're going to make real progress and you're standing on the edge of a cliff, the only way to make progress is to back up. 
progressivism is is the new covert language that seeks to uh, achieve the goals of materialist, humanist, socialist communism while uh, changing the verbiage to subtly seduce people so they don't know what it is that they're being seduced into. Progressivism. Oh, then there's other terms that you hear in the context of progressivism, like, how about this one? We want social justice. Well, who doesn't want social justice? I mean, everybody that I know that's a thinking person wants society to be a just society. But you got to understand the meaning of the word progressive in the progressive dictionary. Social justice in their definition doesn't mean that people are treated justly and fairly. It means in their definition that every individual must be forced by the collective to do the bidding of the collective for the good of the collective, no matter how unfair that might be to the individual. Because the individual has no value apart from the collective. A few moments ago, I mentioned that one of the worst manifestations of oppression that could be cited anywhere in history are those religious oppressors who decide that they got a mandate from God to make everybody obey them, and if uh, they don't line up, then they become the object of persecution. Uh, the reason we hate it among religious people more than secular ones is because it's more odious and that it's done in the name of God. But uh, remove God from the situation and you have what we are up against today in this country and in most of uh, the West. This, this irrational foolishness uh, in which uh, law is passed to try to make people behave a certain way so the collective can be uh, considered progressive. I'll give you, for instance, uh, we do our conference in Black Mountain every year. and We've done it for many years, and many of you have come. And we're greatly blessed there and grateful for the accommodations that are provided for us by the YMCA there. But we got a letter from them a few months ago telling us that we need to let you all know that this year they are a, quote, smoke-free campus and that everyone who comes will have to not smoke, even outside, even in their own automobile. Uh, if they're going to smoke, they have to drive down the long driveway all the way to the gate. Now, some people may rejoice over that. So, ah, it's good riddance. Cigarettes are a terrible thing. And I agree. I hate cigarettes. Don't like to smell them. But let me tell you something I think stinks a lot worse than cigarettes. That's when the government starts telling people when and what and where and why and how they can do everything uh, from uh, smoking cigarettes to taking in uh, empty calories. Because the next, the next big thing, see, is going to be to police what you eat. They're already doing it in England. You know, they're going to come by and check and see what you have in your refrigerator because nanny government is going to help poor little stupid uh, individual uh, progress towards the wisdom of the collective. And uh, obvious that you don't have sense enough to, to stop smoking, so we're going to make you stop smoking. And you don't have sense enough not to eat bad calories, so we're going to make you get a better diet. So where does it stop? Uh, 
how many children you can have, what sexes, uh, what what sex the children can be, uh, on and on and on. Yet at the same time, uh, in the name of progress, we're going to remove all restrictions from any activity that would protect children from pornographers or protect uh, the family from uh, being injured by uh, oppressive taxation or protect marriage from that which would help to uh, disintegrate marriage by making no-fault divorce available. Uh, You see, as long as you speak in political terminology, it can all sound so objective and so up for discussion uh, by naming it progressivism or whatever term you want to use you know the current progressives don't they don't even want to be called progressives now because that that's being uncovered for what it is so they're trying to find some other uh, terminology to cover their activity but you keep following the uh, the originations of these ways of thinking all the way back to the original destroyer. And behind it all, you find the destroyer, whether he's wearing a religious robe and destroying people in the name of uh, legalism, or he's wearing uh, an American flag draped around himself, destroying people in the name of progressivism uh, and social justice, or etc. The, the destroyer is behind all of these things. Jesus says uh, that he has come to give us life. The thief has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I mentioned coming into my office this morning feeling empty and feeling down and feeling discouraged and without any energy. And I explained quickly how I moved from that place to my true self and gained perspective and objectivity that I needed to be able to carry forward. And not only gained objectivity, but got the joy of the Lord, which gave me the strength to do what I need to do. That's how I live my life. Now, the reason I bring all those subjects together is this. Many people who belong to the Lord, and I believe they do belong to the Lord, but they are under a web of spiritual oppression that they don't realize is coming from having embraced some of these progressive ways of thinking, so-called progressive. And uh, they don't realize how much deception has crept into their everyday life, their everyday way of thinking, and uh, how this slowly begins to disintegrate their, their view of themselves as being valuable. You see, if you're not valuable, then that which directly relates to you, namely your marriage, your children, your profession, your private activities, your small, relatively small influence in your community, your uh, relatively small stature in the human race, well, all that just goes to prove that obviously you are of no value at all. And what you do, therefore, doesn't matter If you take in any of that to any degree, it becomes the poison seed that can begin to eat away at your sense of value, your sense of fulfillment, your joy, 
your feelings of meaning, the, 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 the meaning that comes into your life and the emotions that that meaning provides begins to be disintegrated and taken from you. That's exactly what was waiting for me when I walked in my office this morning. The spirit that would tell me to define myself by some collectivist definition of success or value or efficiency or effectiveness or whatever. And the the way out of that is to turn straight up towards the one who created me from whom I get the definition of who I am and therefore the value and, and uh, preciousness of what I am and who I am and who relates to me and how I relate to them. Then all my joy is restored. All the joy and fulfillment of my life is restored. You see, common sense knows these things. Uh I've been in situations where um, I'm standing up to speak to a number of people and something maybe has um, hindered me from being able to talk to Mary or or, uh, work through some problem that Mary and I may have been having. And I get through speaking and they're all clapping and they like what I did. So what? Nothing matters to me if things are not right between me and Mary. Uh, doesn't matter at all. You see, when that gets turned upside down, you have situations where a man can easily walk away from his wife and children and go up to receive some award in front of a group of people or some Academy Award or some whatever, Golden Globe Award or whatever, and they don't care that they're losing their wife, their children, their family, because something greater has uh, uh, told them they're okay. And all the awards in the world could not replace the smile of my wife. And all the awards in the world could not take away the pain uh, if anything should come between me and, and Mary. That's because I'm sane. That's because I'm in touch with reality. That's because I know who I am. I know who she is. I know who I am in relation to her. I know who she is in relation to me. And I know who we are ultimately in relation to the one who created us and put us together. That is the center of my life on both the human and the spiritual level. Everything else bows to that. And because of that, my joy is full. And because my joy is full, I have the strength to carry forward in the things that I have to do. Now, if you if you lose that, or if you've never had that, if you really do make secondary things primary and primary things secondary, then it's easy to knock you off of your uh, balance and to overcome you. So the Bible, again, ends up being far, far, far wiser than the wisdom of men. It's the the simplicity of everyday relationships that gives you your your stability and your security and your roots. Being rooted and grounded in love, the Bible says, we grow up into him in all things. And uh, we live for the audience of one. Whatever we do, we do unto him first. If other people end up rejoicing over it, that's great. If they don't like it, it doesn't matter. 
Living in that freedom gives you power to stand for truth against all kinds of odds. You're not held hostage by your own silly ego or your own uh, hope of being honored by men. You know, Jesus said, he who speaks his own word seeks his own glory. But he who speaks the words of God seeks God's glory. So when you're no longer trying to get people to notice you and, and pat you on the head and tell you you're okay, then you're free to receive from God and give in his name. Because you're surrounded right now by an ever-increasing uh, mindlessness of deception. Uh, the Kool-Aid drinkers are all around you. Uh, the, 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 the people who on the out, left or right doesn't matter. You've got some right-wing people who wave the American flag and think that God stands up when the American uh, national anthem is played. And uh, America, right or wrong, so there's no willingness to look uh, to see what kind of uh, sin is disintegrating us on the so-called right. And then the manifest darkness and foolishness on the left is so obvious that it doesn't need to be recited. Uh, but the 1960s, which produced what we're seeing today in our culture, was also manifested in the 1860s in what eventually became the Soviet Union. What progress did they make in their progressivism? Well, let me read it to you. This is taken from the Britannica. It says, quote, uh, In reality, whatever name we may apply to them, these students were the extreme representatives of a curious moral awakening and an important intellectual movement among the Russian educated classes. They were characterized by uh, outlandish forms of dress. Women cut their hair short. Men grew their hair long in order to rebel against what they considered uh, bourgeois uh, impositions, definitions. In material and moral progress, Russia had remained behind the other European nations and the educated classes felt after the humiliation of the Crimean War, which you could interpret as their Vietnam, that the reactionary regime of the Emperor Nicholas must be replaced by a series of drastic reforms. With the impulsiveness of youth and the recklessness of inexperience, the students went in this direction much farther than their elders, and their reforming zeal naturally took an academic pseudo-scientific form. Having learned the rudiments of legal positivism, which is just a, a fancy phrase for legislating from the bench, that's my, my parenthesis there, they conceived the idea that Russia had outlived the religious and metaphysical stages of human development and was ready to enter on the positivist stage. In other words, to become secularly, secularly progressive. She ought, therefore, to throw aside all religious and metaphysical conceptions, such as God, and to relegate her intellectual, social, and political life by the pure light of natural science. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Among the antiquated institutions which had to be abolished as obstructionist uh, 
and hindering real progress were, of course, religion, family life, and ownership of private property. The article goes on to explain that uh, the primary tool for the re-educating of the masses would begin with the universities and then trickle down through the, uh, the mass media, primarily newspapers and uh, works of fiction and entertainment. This has all been done before. Now, the fact that this happened in the 1860s in the Soviet Union and paved the way for the revolution of 1917 should cause us to begin to do a little bit of calculating and consider the parallels. And so what would you have done had you been alive in Russia in the 1860s? Well, you have an, an opportunity to do it now in the 1960s revolution that is now reaching up into 2009 and has now taken over most of Congress and the White House and is permeating the entire European continent. It's difficult to find words to awaken people who choose to stay secure in the false belief that whatever is happening, it's all going to work out and uh, there's no need to be uh, concerned. All that's necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. And so far, good people mostly have done nothing until it's begun to affect our pocketbooks. Then we begin to get highly motivated because it was affecting our own private happiness. But what is needed and what is awakening here and there is a grassroots movement of people who are not motivated by their economy issues, but are motivated by something far greater and far stronger and far more powerful. And that is the kingdom of God. In our closing time together, let me give you some examples that will bless you and motivate you and help you get a vision for what you could be doing. Um, I encountered just yesterday uh, a young man who uh, has only been a Christian for, I think, about a year or so. He was a bartender. He began to sense how empty and useless his life was. And in the process of that awakening, he came to Christ. And not having had any religious background, thankfully, <laughs> he took what he had and asked the Lord to bless it. And uh, he, uh, through a series of circumstances I want to explain here, began to uh, study world disease and what it was causing, uh, how people were dying. And he realized that uh, uh, people were dying mostly from lack of good water. That was the number one cause of death in, in third world countries. So he, he put together a, a ministry called Wine to Water, where he, he would gather people at wine tastings, not something that Bible Belt churchgoers would necessarily get behind. And so consequently, most of his uh, support was coming from non-believers, and he would share the gospel with them, and he raised thousands and thousands of dollars and didn't quite know what to do with the money once he raised it. So he, he went to Samaritan's Purse <clears throat> and told them about it. They hooked him up with uh, various places around the world that needed 
this kind of work. And now he goes all over the world helping villages and, and areas that don't have drinking water get drinking water. <clears throat> he shares the gospel with them. He comes home. He has his wine tasting things. He shares the gospel with the people at the wine tasting things. <clears throat> the sad footnote of this story, of course, is that uh, some self-righteous little groups here and there uh, have uh, X'd him off as counterfeit because he's uh, interacting with evil wine which is just, you know, what do you say to that? But the good news is, here you got a young man who took what little he had to Jesus, like fish and bread, asked Jesus to direct him and bless it, and now he has a worldwide ministry doing what he knows how to do. He introduces himself as a, a bartender who who's come to know Jesus. And... uh there are there are stories like that that come across my path regularly of individual people, young people, older people, single people, married couples, retired people, uh, people who have left lucrative businesses and gone into uh, inner city ministry. Who, uh, uh, I know a, a man who left a lucrative Christian music ministry, quote-unquote, and now serves the poor in his city and is transforming that that part of his city. People are awakening to their own individual power in Christ. And I started out this time together today telling you that I was met when I came to, to my office with a spiritual force that was present to tell me what you do doesn't matter. Who you are doesn't matter. You have no strength. You have no power. Uh, why don't you just give up and hide? And the minute I recognized the, the presence of that darkness and what it had to say to me, I knew two things. I knew, number one, that I was uh, being challenged by the powers of darkness uh, in an area that uh, they must be worried that I'm about to move into. And number two, uh, most important of all, that they are to rise, uh, that I, I am to rise up and stand in the opposite spirit of that. So what's coming at you? Is it is it depression? Stand in the opposite spirit. Begin to worship God. Offer the sacrifice of praise in the, in the place of the spirit of heaviness. Is it lust coming at you? Then why don't you go with the opposite spirit? Go some find somebody who is not lovely, who is not attractive, who is not in any way enhancing of your ego, and serve them. Find some way to give to them. Go to a hospital. Find somebody who's manifestly unattractive physically, who's lying there hurting, and give to them. Uh, are you under financial tension? You don't have any money at all? Go find something that you've got that you can give. It doesn't have to be money. It can be your time. It can be a listening ear. It can be a willingness to serve somebody in ways that have nothing to do with money. But if it's money, if money's the issue and you have no money to give, then ask the Lord to, to show you what to give out of your need that he can take and bless and multiply and turn into good. I mean, we could go right down the list, couldn't we? Of all the different things in our in our character and experience that 
uh, where we're lacking, where we're failing. You having trouble with your children? You having a rebellious child who's giving you a hard time? Uh, go find somebody else's child and bless them. And just say, Father, while I'm blessing this other child, please remember mine. See, this is not a matter of bargaining. It's not a matter of manipulating. It's not a matter of trying to get God to, to do what you want him because you're, you're doing something to get God to like you. It's just a matter of choosing to live in the opposite spirit of whatever is attacking you. See, I came in and uh, felt absolutely like my prayers would fall off my chin if I opened my mouth to pray. They just dribble off my chin. So what did I do? I began to pray. You know, when you don't feel like praying, you ought to pray about it. When you don't feel like talking to God, there's evidently some force present that is there to keep you from pressing in to make contact. The Holy Spirit is there watching this interaction and cheering you on in the hopes that you will press through the flesh, press through your five senses, press through your feelings or lack of feelings, which quite often is more to the point, and and offer him the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of your lips. The sacrifice is then met by the fire of God, and where once you were cold and empty and fruitless, you become empowered and anointed and envisioned, and then you move forward from there. So that everything against you becomes for you. I mean, I don't mean let the devil set the agenda, but I'll tell you what, when he wants to come at me that strongly before I've even had a chance to get my day started, I just take that as a pretty good uh, signal that uh, this must be some area that I'm supposed to, to, to take into prayer and to take into consideration and to conquer in the name of Jesus. So I may be talking to myself. Maybe you're not having this problem. Maybe you don't have anything like this going on in your world, but I tend to think you probably do. And uh, if, if you're feeling hopeless and you're overwhelmed with gloom and doom and all of the dark uh, possibilities that are surrounding you, I understand that. But the purpose the Holy Spirit has in awakening you to dark situations is so you can be light in them. The purpose God has in awakening you to rotten situations is so that you can be salt in them. It's not to make you uh, feel burdened so that all you do is sit around and feel burdened. Uh, sometimes people, we want the will of God. What is the will of God? Sometimes the will of God is the thing right in front of you that you least want to deal with. I've noticed over the years that the will of God for me is often quite inconvenient. But if I die to myself and press through it, it ends up being a tremendous blessing. Some of our greatest ministry has taken place in Miami, Florida, a, a part of the country that I had no emotional attachment to when I was first asked to come. When Mary and I first were, were invited down by a dear friend of ours who had pioneered that area in ministry, uh, we wanted to go because of our relationship with her. Uh, but there was no emotional attachment at all to Miami. And some of the folks in Miami will remember saying to me, 
you know, nobody comes here on purpose. I mean, we're, we're the jumping off place. But uh, it's it's been a fruitful and blessed place all of our lives uh, for the last decade or more. But in my flesh, I wouldn't have chosen that at all. Now, in closing, let me just say uh, one thing uh, that I've mentioned before, but I, I just want to keep it before us. It's absolutely vital that me and you and all of us guard ourselves against thinking in terms of uh, parties, Democrat, Republican, left-wing, right-wing, etc. I don't mean by that that you're not to be politically engaged. I don't believe it's possible to be spiritually awake and be politically neutral. Jesus was not politically neutral. If you had asked Jesus uh, a point-blank question about the righteousness or unrighteousness of the activities of his day, I mean, you read Matthew 23, he was not disconnected. He knew what the Sadducees were about. He knew what the Pharisees were up to. He understood the Herodians. He knew what Herod was. He called him a fox. And that word fox there doesn't mean what it means in American um, vernacular. It doesn't mean crafty. It means a, a, a jerk. Uh, and it's a very derogatory term. But he didn't engage them as if that engagement was his ultimate source of power. Obviously. When he says, my kingdom is not of this world, he, he didn't mean that uh, we Christians, that my people, and uh, you know, we, we live off in a little weird, invisible land that doesn't have anything to do with the earth. That's not what he meant. He meant that his power source didn't come from political activity or political organization. Uh, but his very presence before them was because he was engaging the earth and the powers and principalities of the earth. So... We're not to be completely disconnected and, and live in some kind of quietism that hides behind spirituality to avoid confrontation. But neither are we to go in in our own human strength, hoping God will bless it and claiming that we are politically correct because we're Christians. That what we believe, because I'm a Christian, then therefore I know I'm right. You have to discern every situation. For instance, it wasn't too many years ago that I was involved in a political confrontation uh, in which Republicans were supposed to be representing the right side of the argument. They claimed to be, quote, hard on crime. Well, what did they mean by hard on crime? I'll tell you what they meant. They meant they would make sure somebody went to jail so it would look as if they were doing their job and it didn't matter if the person who went to jail was innocent or guilty. Recently, uh, in Memphis, a... Uh, District Attorney has come to power who has gone back and uncovered numerous cases in which uh, his previous, uh, his predecessor, which I believe was a Republican, uh, had, had uh, falsely accused and won convictions with many people because uh, he wanted to look like he was, quote, tough on crime. On the other hand, what does it mean when somebody on the left says that they care for the poor? What does that really mean? Does it mean they care for the poor or does it mean they like the poor to stay poor so they can use them as political pawns to stay in power. See, judge righteous judgment. Evil is not in a party. It's not in the left or the right. It's in our hearts. And as we discern every situation, we humbly trust the Holy Spirit to give us the power to be salt and light in that situation. But most of all, we don't lay down and let the devil tell us we're of no value. So let's try to sum this up. 
The spirit of darkness, which constantly seeks to destroy what God intends to bless, works through political powers and philosophies of men in order to disguise his work as being a mere human concept. When you take in those human concepts through the osmosis of living in a culture that is permeated by philosophies of darkness, you can subtly be seduced into believing lies. Those lies are meant to destroy your sense of identity in Christ. You stand against that by standing in who you are in Christ. Ephesians chapter 6, having done all, stand. Romans chapter 14, verse 4, God has the power to give you the strength to stand. And as you stand in him, you find that when it's necessary, you have the power to stand against the collective. Right now, it's vital that you know who you are in Christ and that you take your stand in your relationship to your wife, your husband, your children, your friends, your body of believers, whatever you're about. But be aware when you hear that subtle demonic voice that says you're of no value and you have no power and you don't make a difference. So stay quiet, stay stupid, stay passive. Stay in the background. Don't do anything to make waves and just try to tie a knot and hold on and hope that you can survive. When you hear voices like that, you can guarantee you're not hearing from the voice of the one whose voice alone matters. Stand in who you are in Christ. And as you do that, you'll find that your love for your family and for your friends and for the people in your life increases, which increases your joy which increases your strength, which increases your power to stand against the principalities and powers that are constantly seeking to undo who you are and who Christ is in you. Thanks for listening. God bless you. Lord willing, I'll talk to you again next time.